John chapter 6, verse 60 through chapter 7, verse 24, verses 60 through 62. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they'd heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that the disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What, and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? Burkett notes, The foregoing doctrine of our Savior concerning eating his flesh and drinking his blood sounded so very harshly that not only the common multitude, but some of them that had been his disciples, that is, who had given up their names to follow him, could not tell how to bear it. Our Savior reproves their unjust stumbling at what he'd said, that he was the bread which came down from heaven, and tells them that his ascension into heaven should prove the truth of his descent from heaven. Hence learn that Christ's arising from the grave and ascending into heaven by his own power is an evident proof of his Godhead, and that he really came down from heaven in respect to his divine nature, which condescended to be clothed with our flesh. What, and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? Verse 63. It's the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. Burkett notes, To convince the Jews that our Savior did not mean a carnal and fleshly eating of his body, he tells them that such an eating would profit nothing, but it is a spiritual eating of him by faith that bringeth that quickening life of which he had spoken. It is the spirit, or divine nature, that quickeneth. The flesh, or human nature alone, separated from his Godhead, profiteth nothing, and can give no life. Learn hence that it is the Godhead of Christ, united to human nature, which adds all virtue, efficacy, and merit to the obedience and suffering of the human nature. It is the spirit, or divine nature, of Christ that quickeneth. The flesh or human nature alone profiteth nothing, and therefore the carnal eating of his flesh would do no good. Verses 64 to 66. But there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore I said unto you that no man could come unto me, except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior, having thus cleared his doctrine, that he was the bread of life which came down from heaven, and that he is not to be carnally, but spiritually fed upon, he plainly tells the Jews that the true cause of their stumbling at this doctrine was their ignorance and unbelief. There are some of you that believe not. Upon which plain dealing of our blessed Saviors, many unsound professors did wholly forsake him, and accompanied no longer with him. Learn hence that multitudes who have long professed Christ and his holy religion may draw back and fall from their profession, and finally revolt from him. Two, that it is in an evil heart of unbelief which causes men to depart from Christ and to make a shipwreck of their profession. Verses 67 through 71. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Burkett notes, 
our Savior, finding many of his nominal disciples forsaking him and departing from him, asks his disciples, the twelve, whether they would also go that way, intimating that their departure would go nearer to him than the departure of all the rest. The nearer they are, from whom we receive unkindness, the nearer do these unkindnesses go to our hearts. Will you also, the twelve, go away? Peter, as the mouth and in the name of the rest, answers that they knew none besides to whom they could go and expect the happiness which they did from him. They that go from Christ can never hope to mend themselves. Let them go whither they will. Therefore tis as irrational as it is sinful to depart from Christ, who hath the words, that is, the promises of eternal life. Observe lastly, St. Peter having made this profession for himself and the rest of the twelve, that they would not depart from Jesus, whom they believed to be the true Messiah, the Son of God, Christ intimates to Peter that his charity was something too large in promising so much for all of them. For there was one traitor among them, whose heart was open to Christ as his face was to them. He meant it of Judas Iscariot, of whose perfidiousness he gave them warning at this time. Learn hence that the better any man is in himself, the more charitable is the opinion which he has of others. Charity inclines to believe others good till they discover themselves to be bad. Learn, too, that Christ doth approve of our charitable judgment of others' sincerity according to what we hope and believe, though we happen to be mistaken, and our judgment is not according to truth. Christ knew Judas to be a hypocrite at this time, but doth not reprove Peter for having a better opinion of him than he deserved. Tis far better to err on the charitable than on the censorious hand. Tis less offensive to Christ and less injurious to ourselves. Chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior, knowing that the rage of the chief priests and Pharisees in Judea and in Jerusalem was grown to that height that they were resolved to kill him, to avoid their fury, he resolves to continue in Galilee and would not come into Judea at present, nor go up to Jerusalem into the mouth of his enemies, his hour being not yet come. Learn hence that so long as it was necessary for Christ to save and preserve himself from danger, he was pleased to use the ordinary means for his own preservation, namely retirement and withdrawing himself. Christ as God could have rid himself out of the hands of his enemies by a miraculous preservation but he uses the ordinary means when they would serve the turn. And as he would not decline danger when his hour was come, so would he not run before it was come, but used all prudential means and methods for his own safety and preservation. He would not come into Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacle was at hand. Burkett notes. There were three great feasts which the Jews celebrated every year, namely the Feast of the Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. This last was observed in the month of September, after they had gathered in the fruits of the earth, whence it was also called the Feast of Ingathering. At this feast they went out of their houses and dwelt in booths seven days, in remembrance of their living in tents or booths in the wilderness for forty years together before they came to Cana. Now the institution of this feast, being to call Israelites to remembrance of their former condition in the wilderness, teaches us how prone and ready we are to forget our troubles and the mercies wherewith our troubles have been sweetened once they are past and over. 
the Jews, when settled in Cana, going out of their houses yearly and dwelling in booths, did thereby testify that present mercies had not made them forget former trials and troubles. Verses 3 and 4. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples may also see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou doest these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, the advice which Christ's brethren, that is, his kindred, gave him, to render himself more famous and publicly known to the world. They advise him not to stay any longer in Galilee, an obscure place, but to go into the more noble and populous country of Judea and work miracles there. But what high presumption this was in creatures to prescribe to Christ and direct him whither to go and what to do. Observe, too, the reason they offer for their advice. For no man that seeketh to be known openly will do anything in secret. That is, if thou wilt be thought to be the Messiah by thy working miracles, do them not in a corner, but go up to Jerusalem with us at the next feast, that the great men may take notice of them. Such as hunt after reputation themselves, and are ambitious of vainglory and commendation from men, measure others, even the most holy and religious, by their own inclinations and dispositions, and wonder that others do not follow their measures for gaining reputation and respect. Thus did our Lord's brethren hear. But the wonder ceases if we consider the following words. Neither did his brethren believe in him. It is no new thing for the holiest servants of God to meet with great trials from their graceless friends. Christ met with this before us. His kindred, according to the flesh, not believing in him, were a sore trial and temptation to him. Some martyrs have confessed that the hardest work they have met with all has been to withstand the temptation, the tears, and entreaties of their dearest and nearest relations. Verses 6 through 9. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up into this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. Burkett notes, here we have Christ's answer and refusal returned to his brethren's desires. He tells them that they might go up to the feast of Jerusalem when they pleased, and as publicly, but it was not fit for him to appear so publicly, because the doctrine which he taught was odious to the Pharisees and the prevailing powers at Jerusalem. He therefore resolves to go up privately, that he might not stir up the jealousy of the Sanhedrin. But for them, they were out of danger of the world's hatred, for being the children of it, the world would love its own, but him it hated, because he reproved its sins. Where we may remark that though our Lord Jesus Christ was most freely willing and ready to lay down his life for sinners when the time was come that God the Father called for it, yet he would not expose his life to hazard and danger unseasonably, teaching us, by his example, as not to decline suffering when God calls us to them, so not to tempt God by running into them when we may inoffensively avoid them. Your time is always ready. Mine is not yet come. Verses 10 through 13. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up into the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. The Jews sought him at the feast and said, 
Where is he? And there is so much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, He is a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. Burkett notes, Observe here how our blessed Savior, who came to fulfill the law, goes up to Jerusalem at the Jewish feasts, according to the command of God. Exodus 23. Three times a year shall all thy males appear before me. Christ, being made under the law, showeth the punctual obedience to the law, and fulfilled it in his own person. Observe, too, the different opinions which the Jews at Jerusalem do express concerning our Savior, some allowing him the charitable character of being a good man, others traducing him as being a deceiver of the people. Dear Lord, we see, when here on earth, pass through evil report and good report. Is it any wonder to find the friends of Christ branded with infamy and reproach when Christ himself passed under the infamous character of a deceiver of the people? Some allowed him to be a good man, but others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Verses 14 through 18. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God, or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh the glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, though Christ went up to Jerusalem privately, lest he should stir up the jealousy of the Pharisee against himself unseasonably, yet he went into the temple and taught publicly. His example teaches us this much, that although the servants of Christ may for a time, and in some cases, withdraw themselves from apprehended danger, yet when God calls them to appear openly, they must do it courageously, without shrinking, though the danger be still impending. Jesus went up to Jerusalem, entered the temple, and taught. Observe, too, so admirable was our holy Lord's doctrine that the Jews marveled how he should come to the knowledge of such divine mysteries, considering the meanness of his education. They were struck with admiration, but they wanted faith, whereas the least degree of saving faith is beyond all admiration without it. Observe, three, our Lord vindicates his doctrine, telling the Jews that the doctrine he delivered was not his own that is, not of his own inventing and devising. It was no contrivance of his, nor was it taught him by men, but received by him immediately from the Father, whose ambassador and great prophet he was. Again, when Christ says, My doctrine is not mine, that is, not only mine, but my Father's and mine, for as he was God equal with the Father, so naturally knew all his counsels, and as man had knowledge thereof by communication from his Godhead. Learn hence that the doctrine of the gospel is a doctrine holy from God. He contrived it and sent his own Son into the world to publish and reveal it. Christ was sent, and his doctrine was not his own, but his that sent him. Observe for a double rule given by our Savior, whereby the Jews might know whether the doctrine he preached were the doctrine of God. First, if a man walked uprightly and doth the will of God in the best manner according to his knowledge, if any man will do his will, he shall know of my doctrine, whether it be of God. There is no such way to find out truth as by doing the will of God. The second rule by which they might know that his doctrine was from God was this, 
because he sought his father's glory and not his own, and the delivery of it. He that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true. Hence learn that the nature and scope of that doctrine which Christ delivered, eminently tending not to promote his own private glory, but the glorifying of his Father, is an undoubted proof and evidence that his doctrine was of God. Verses 19 through 23. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go you about to kill me? The people answered and said, Thou hast a devil. Who goeth about to kill thee? Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and ye ought marveled. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses's, but of the Father's. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me, because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Burkett notes. Observe here, one, that our Lord, having vindicated his doctrine in the former verses, comes now to vindicate his practice in healing the impotent man on the Sabbath day, for which the Jews sought his life as a violation of the fourth commandment given by Moses. Our Savior tells them that notwithstanding their pretended zeal for the law of Moses, they more notoriously broke the sixth commandment by going about to kill him, an innocent person, than he had broken the fourth commandment by making a man whole on the Sabbath day. Hence learn that it is damnable hypocrisy when men pretend a great zeal for the sins of others and do allow and tolerate worse in themselves. This is for their practice to give their profession the lie. The Jews condemn our Savior for a supposed breach of the fourth commandment whilst they are guilty themselves of a real breach of the sixth commandment. Observe, too, the ignominy and approach which the Jews fix upon our blessed Savior in the height of their rage and fury against him. Thou hast a devil. The king of saints in heaven, as well as the whole host of saints on earth, has been frequently smitten and deeply wounded with reproach. Christ was reproached for our sake, and when we are reproached for his sake, he takes our reproach as his own. Moses' reproach was the reproach of Christ, Hebrews 11.26, and he esteemed it a treasure which did more enrich him with its worth than press him with its weight, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Observe 3. The wonderful meekness of Christ in passing over this reproach and calumny without one word of reply. Guilt is commonly clamorous and impatient, but innocence is silent and regardless of misreports. Our Savior is not at the pains of a word to vindicate himself from their impotent censure, but goes on with his discourse and justifies his own action in healing a man on the Sabbath day from the Jews' own practice in circumcising their children on that day, if it happened to be the eighth day. And the argument runs thus. If circumcision may be administered to a child on the Sabbath day, which is a servile kind of work and bodily exercise, without blame or censure, why must I fall under censure for healing a man on the Sabbath day, thoroughly and perfectly, by only speaking a word? Hence learn that the law of doing good and relieving the miserable at all times is more ancient and excellent law than either that of the Sabbath rest or of the circumcision upon the eighth day. A ritual law must and ought to give place to the law of nature, which is written in every man's heart. As if our Lord had said, If you may wound a man by circumcision on the Sabbath day, may I not heal one? If you may heal on that day one member of the circumcised, 
May I not make a man more whole every whit? If you be at pains to cure such a one with your hand, may I not without pains cure a man with a word of my mouth? Verse 24. Judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Burkett notes, From the foregoing argument, Christ draws an inference or conclusion that there is no making a judgment according to the first appearance of things, and that suddenness or rashness, prejudice or partiality in judging, overthrows righteous judgment. This is the general application of what Christ had said before, and the particular application of it as to himself comes to this. Judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. As if Christ had said, lay aside your prejudice against my person, and compare these cases attentively and impartially with one another, and then see whether you can justly condemn me as a Sabbath-breaker and acquit yourselves. Such was the perfect innocency of our Savior's actions, that he could and did submit them to the reason and judgment of his very enemies.